This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here on the Blaze Radio, one 888 and Slater Radio on the Twitter. I want to tell you the story. I want to tell the story of Greg Buckley Jr. Lance Corporal Gregory Buckley Jr. Was a Marine deployed in an outpost in southern Afghanistan, 21 years old. And he called his dad one day and he said, Dad, if I have to stay here until November, I'm not going to come home, which is a weird sentence. If, I, if I'm going to stay here till November, I'm not going to come home. And he said, son, what, what do you mean? He said, Dad, tell mom and, and my brothers that I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it home. Pre- prepare them for that. I don't understand, son. What are you talking about? Are you going to be killed out in the field? Are you, what, like, what are you? And Buckley said, no, I'm going to be killed on our base. Imagine receiving that phone call as a dad. You're proud of your son. You're proud of your Marine son serving in Afghanistan. He calls you up one day. You're thrilled to hear from him. And he says, prepare mom and my brothers that I'm not going to make it home. I'm going to be killed on my base. Two weeks later, Buckley was shot on base by one of the Afghans that he was training. Just two weeks after that phone call, and he was set to come home two days later. How did Buckley know that something was wrong? Pretty simple. One night, one of the Afghans he was training said to him, we don't want you here. We don't need you here. And Buckley said, why, why would you say that? And the Afghan kept repeating it over and over again. Buckley was on uh, guard watch at night, and the, the, the Afghan guy said it over and over again. It's pitch black all night long. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. We don't want you here. We don't need you here. Right? Think about it. It's like a kind of torment. And finally, Buckley couldn't take it anymore. He started yelling back at the guy in his face. And a group of officers had to separate them. And Buckley, the American, was forced to apologize to the Afghan guy. That was one month before he called his dad. That entire time, he thought he wasn't even going to make it. He thought he was going to get killed on base. And sure enough, he was. It's called a green-on-blue attack. In 2012, 15% of coalition deaths were green-on-blue attacks. Think about that. 15% were coalition members, Americans, killed by the very Afghans that they armed and trained on base. You may have heard about those before, green on blue attacks. It gets worse than that. Those are bad enough. And when we talked about those a couple of years ago, I didn't see how it could get much worse than that. Just, and, and from like a politically correct, like why, why, why are we trusting these people? And I'll tell you a story in a little bit here about who we're trusting, like the type of people we're trusting to be on the military base. I'll give you a specific. So the, the whole thing is it's outrageous that we allow it, and it's going to get worse for you. It turns out Buckley was not killed by one of the Afghan soldiers. He was killed. He was shot and killed by a 17-year-old sex slave of one of the Afghan soldiers. One of the, se- I should say, male sex slaves. 17-year-old boy. One of the male sex slaves that was living on base with an Afghan soldier for the express purpose of being a sex slave. And she think it's like, what are you talking about? All right, let me back it up here. In that last phone call 
that Buckley made home. He told his dad that all night he hears screams from boys below him. All right, so in the barracks, Buckley's on the second floor. On the floor below him was an Afghan soldier. His name was Sarwar Jan. S-A-R-W-A-R, Sarwar Jan, J-A-N. This Afghan guy, fresh off a two-year prison sentence for corruption supporting the Taliban and child abduction, Okay, and think about how bad it has to be to get a two-year prison sentence in, in, in Afghanistan, right? This Afghan guy, right after his prison sentence, moved onto the base with a group of T-boys. T-E-A, T-boys, they called them. Young boys, 14 to 17, who lived with him. They were his sex slaves on the base. Those were the boys that Buckley would hear at night being raped. And when he complained to his superiors, he was told there was nothing they could do. He was told that was their culture. He was told that we're not here. Americans aren't here to change their culture. We'll talk about coming up. How, and I know, put this in the category of things you did not think you wanted to know. Having sex with boys in Afghanistan is a pretty prevalent thing. Talk about that in a second. But let's just sit on this. Afghan soldiers are raping young boys on American military bases. And our Marines are told to look the other way. What what do you do? This is where our politically correct world has taken us. We allow child rape on our bases. Turn the other way because it's the Afghan culture. As if that's just like a cultural difference. Like, like as if that's like, well, the, you know, the British people like soccer and we like football. No, 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 no. That's, that's, a, that's a human rights violation. That's a war crime. I mean, you can't, what are you talking about? And then one of those sex slaves goes and kills three of our Marines. Buckley wasn't the only Marine killed that day. And our Marines have to stand by and be tormented physically, of course, and emotionally. You know, we say on this show all the time, because I think it's worth repeating. Our warriors are not brutes. They're not. The warrior shields, defends, stand, stands between, and guards. And even Marines, whose job it is to kill people and break things, that's still in the context of protecting and defending. And when you train a Marine to be an upstanding gentleman, and when you train a Marine to shield the defenseless and protect those who need protecting, and you put them in a barracks where they can hear young boys screaming for help when they're being raped on their base and then tell them they're not, they're not allowed to do anything about it, that in itself is a form of torture. It gets worse. Sergeant First Class Charles Martland, runner-up for the 2014 Special Warfare Training Group Instructor of the Year. This guy's legit. Green Beret. 11 years. He was on a deployment to Afghanistan, his second. And he was at a remote outpost with another Green Beret, Dan Quinn. A 12-year-old Afghan boy came up to these Green Berets, showed them where his hands had been tied. Tied together and tied to a bed. They took the boy to a medic, and the boy said he was raped by a guy, Abdul Khraman. Khraman was one of the Afghan police commanders that they were training. Again, we armed, we trained, we paid for this Afghan to be in the police force. And Martland found out that he was raping boys. They confronted him. Nothing happened. Later, they found out that Rahman went and beat up the boy's mother. The Green Braves had enough. Because again, they're not brutes. They're protectors. They confronted this Rahman guy again. He admitted to everything. But brushed it off. Shrugged his shoulders. So the two Green Berets picked him up and threw him on the ground. They didn't do it to retaliate. They didn't do it to, to hurt him. I mean, they, they could have. 
They did it just to tell him that they were serious. He was bruised up a little bit, but otherwise okay. Robin went to a nearby village, found an army unit there, told them what happened. And the next day, a helicopter landed at their outpost to take these two green berets away. One of the berets, uh, Dan Quinn, relieved of his command, he's since left the army. Martland has been fighting to stay in. And he, the army's trying to kick him out. Have you ever heard a more ridiculous thing in your entire life? Honestly, have you ever heard anything more ridiculous than that? Anything more offensive than that? We can talk about political correctness in our military. We can talk about how our military has become, in far too many ways, a social experiment. You know, forget about an openly gay man being appointed the secretary of the army that Obama did uh, last week, Eric Fanning. Forget about that. The pinnacle of political correctness in our military is putting an Afghan child rapist against above two of the finest elite military operators that we have today. Can you get any more despicable than that? Call me crazy. But I am against allowing Afghan police and soldiers to rape little boys on American military bases. I know, I know, I know it's, a, it's an extreme policy position to take. I never thought I'd have to take it. But in the politically correct world we live in, this is what we've created. Because who are we to say that their culture's wrong? Which may be true, right? You, you, and there may be people saying, yes, later, you know what? We're not going to go over there and change their entire culture. Okay, fine. But how about we, we, we draw a line that says if you want to rape boys, you do it over there, not on our American military base. Because somewhere in the ch- chain of command, this conversation had to take place. Because that guy, that Sarwar Jan guy, when he showed up one day to live on, on base, he showed up with a bunch of 14-year-old boys. You don't think someone in the military said, oh, wait a second, what's that about? Oh, those are just the boys he rapes at night. And like someone had to make this official policy that this is acceptable. How can that possibly be? Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I just did a FaceTime with my nephew, one year old, just turned one, had to give him a little birthday phone call before bedtime. This kid, so stinking cute. It is, it is ridiculous. It's, he's so cute. I can't believe that my brother played a role in making him at all. Like I, I, I don't see, it doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. How did he... I, Clearly, mostly his wife. So adorable. Um, thank you for being here. Should we wrap up our discussion about Afghanistan? I think we will. But I want to tell one story about how it should be done, how it could be done. 
about because I know we, again we you know we have this um, uh, perception that uh, you know we are not to impose our cultural norms or heck even judge the cultural norms of other people. So who are we? Who are we to march into Afghanistan and tell these men to stop raping young boys on American military bases? That's the perception that I mean that, that's the culture that we've created. So I want to tell you what could be Charles Napier was the British commander-in-chief in India. And he conquered the area that, that we now know as uh, Pakistan. I, I would love to do a better study on British imperialism in Africa and, and India and the rest. Um, I, I, I just find that period fascinating. Um, I don't know much about Sir Charles, but uh, I do know this story. In the areas that he took over, and that he was the governor of or the commander of, there was a practice called sati, S-A-T-I. When the husband died, they would cremate him in a uh, funeral pyre. And the woman would be forced to jump on the flames and kill herself. I don't know if that sentence is right, because if you're forced to do something... That results in your death. Does that mean you killed yourself? I think that means you were murdered. Right? So they would force women to uh, jump on top of her husband's funeral pyre. Well, Napier came to town and said, uh, Cheerio, we're not going to do this anymore. Okay? And they said, oh, but it's our culture. It's our custom. And this is what he said. Quote, be it so. This burning of widows is your custom. So prepare the funeral pile. But my nation also has a custom. When men burn women alive, we hang them and confiscate all their property. My carpenter shall therefore erect gallows on which to hang all concerned when the widow is consumed. Let us each act according to to national customs. That marked the end of Sati. Why could we not do the same thing in Afghanistan? Why not say, oh, 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 man love Thursday, or whatever, love Thursdays, man, what do they, what is it called? Love Thursdays, man love Thursdays. Oh, you, okay, man love Thursdays is your, is your custom. Afghan soldiers and police officers on base. Uh, okay, uh, as, you, as you were. Uh, but it is also our custom that if you rape a young boy, we shoot you in the head. Let us all act according to national custom. At least so far as it goes as on our military base. Is that so wrong? And who, who is going to be the person who says no, no? We must, like, that's what I don't get. Who's the person who's like, no, we must allow men to rape young boys on America. Who, who are you? Where, what are you t- who does it? Who's that person? I don't, they, there's no way they exist. So why are we letting this happen? Unbelievable. At least when it comes to those that we pay, right? Those that we pay to work as Afghan police. You know, in Iraq, one of the ways that they would recruit Uh, female suicide bombers was to rape them. And this brought dishonor on the woman. 
Then she was told that the way to redeem herself was to become a martyr and blow herself up as a suicide bomber. David French served uh, in Iraq, I think twice, two deployments. And this is what he said in the army. He said, as I experienced this culture, I often reflected on the flattering multicultural lies that we were told during during pre-deployment training. To read the State Department and Pentagon briefings, one would believe that we were entering one of the few truly holy places in the world. A place where a great and ancient people practiced a great and ancient faith. And it was incumbent upon Americans to leave as light a footprint as possible. Deference to culture made friends. Disrespect made enemies. Uh, as you can imagine, that this was not his experience. And in the end, the enemy exploited our deference. They exploited our weaknesses. They did not admire us for our restraint. Quite the opposite. And even worse, our American descriptions of Iraqi culture focused only on the abusers, not on the culture or what's best for the abused. Think about that. This is what we're saying. We're saying, well, their culture is to rape boys. We're going to let that happen. Don't try and change that. As like, so, so we're looking at the culture from, from the abusers as opposed to taking the American stance, which is to look at the abused. Right. As opposed to the American stance, which is, wow, they have a culture where they rape boys. We need to protect the boys. We need to stop this culture of the of the oppressors and side with the oppressed. That's what we do in America. And then as you know, we talk to Dakota Meyer, Medal of Honor winner. And he says, you know, what's our moral obligation? Like we, we lose all of our moral standing when we say we're going over there to, to fight for freedom. And then we are complicit in actual slavery. Right. Think about that. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? We're far away from Afghanistan. Here's why I think this is important. I believe that America has articulated human values better than anyone ever has. Do we achieve those values? No, but we have that goal outlined. But when we become so lost that we don't even have confidence in the ideal and we stop striving for that ideal and we give up on even saying that that ideal is an ideal. Well, gosh, it's awful hard to get back on track, don't you think? That's quite pathetic. We have the strongest weapons in the world in the United States military. There's no doubt about that. But more than that, America also has the strongest values in the world. And we've abandoned both in many ways. Rules of engagement have neutered our service members in the field. And now we've neutered our American values within our military. Have we not? I think with with the strongest weapons and we have the strongest values and we're not allowed to use either. At least that's what we're telling our service members. There's a big difference, and this is where I think many uh, people who mean well are, are confused. There's a difference between pushing American cultural norms on people in a different part of the world and allowing just abject immorality to continue. I'm not saying that we should go and make the people of Iraq uh, Chargers fans or make them eat hamburgers and hot dogs and watch NASCAR. Okay, I'm not saying we need to push ourselves on them, but when our cultural norm is that we raise boys to become men and we don't sexually abuse them in the process, yes, I think we should impose that. And at the very least, as long as we are there, if I may quote David French, as long as we are there, American justice should prevail. But we are so weak and pathetic, we don't even believe that's true anymore. At least those in the military, don't those the higher ups, don't believe that that's even true, that American justice should prevail. What a shame. 1-888-900-3393 on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. 
part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. This guy confessed to raping a child, and what did you guys do to him? Uh, so that's correct, Megan. He, uh, he did confess. Um, we, once we heard about the incident, we brought him in. The, uh, the mother and, and her son came to our camp. He didn't just uh, rape him, Megan. He chained the boy to his bed for seven to ten days, raped him repeatedly. When the mother tried to intervene and save her son, uh, the, uh, the African local police commander struck the mother in the face and, uh, and beat her severely as well. So when they came to our camp, they both showed obvious signs of, of abuse and uh, came to us asking for help. They didn't trust that the local Afghan government would do anything to, to help them and to prevent further occurrences of, of this happening. They, they thought that this was going to be right. a reoccurring thing for her son. What a shock. Uh, so, so you get into a scuffle with him. How badly was he hurt? Sure. Uh, it, it wasn't a scuffle, to be honest. We, we brought him onto our camp because we wanted to discuss the severity of this issue. We said, uh, uh, here are the allegations against you. He said uh, he, he, he agreed to them. And uh, it, it initially started out just uh, just as a uh, as um, as a verbal as an argument. Uh, then he started laughing. Once once we described how how atrocious this was and how disparaging this was, uh, he started laughing in our face and just shrugged shrugged his shoulders, almost as if to say, uh, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, at this point, uh, it, it it got uh, it got physical. I grabbed him, threw him to the ground. Uh, Charles did the same thing a couple a few times. Um, and and our, our, our intent, this was not a, a revenge, an act of revenge or anything like that. This was just, we needed to send a message not only to him, um, but to the other, the other uh, local policemen in our area, because this was the fourth offense of a sexual assault by our, our local policemen, and uh, that this was not going to stand with us. And, uh, you know, we can no longer just stand by and, and blame the Afghan government judicial system for, for not being effective. That's unbelievable. Uh, we have to take matters into our own hands. You, so you, you've left. want to play more of that. In a second. That was Dan Quinn. That was the Green Beret that we were mentioning earlier who was relieved of his command and left the army because of that. Think about it. So essentially kicked out for for taking a child rapist and a woman beater and throwing him to the ground in, in an effort to say, stop doing that as a member of the Afghan police force that we are training you and paying you and arming you to be a part of. And the, the military chose to protect the child rapist over the Green Beret. And the other Green Beret, they're trying to kick him out. Charles Martland. They're trying to kick He wants to stay, but they're trying to kick him out. Those are the two Green Berets. It's outrageous. Like, how can we live in a politically correct culture so much? How can the military, the special forces... Right, The Green Berets become so diseased with political correctness where we have to understand that the differences of native cultures to the point where they rape boys and beat women multiple times and we let it go. And when we try to address how serious it is, the Green Berets get fired. Now this, I just want to make this one last point that we'll move on. This Bachabazi, B-A-C-H-A-B-A-Z-I, Bachabazi, this boy play thing they have in Central Asia, Asia, Afghanistan included. It's been, it's for forever they've had it. it's not a new thing they've had it forever but whenever colonial powers would come in the british the french the russians whoever they would come in and they'd see this and they would say no 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 this is not allowed anymore they you know jeff called in earlier and said we, we were told to turn away and 
the colonial powers who came in before said, no, 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 you're not doing this anymore. You're not raping boys. This is no longer allowed. And the truth is, it's actually against the law in Afghanistan, but you know, whatever. So the other colonial power, now we're not a colonial power, so I'm drawing the line as, and I feel like this is the name of compromise. I'm not saying the practice has to stop entirely, although yes, I'm just saying, let's not, let's, let's just go crazy and not allow it on American military bases. Right? I don't think we should allow boy sex slaves on American military bases for Afghan soldiers. Now, if we decide that we're going to allow this practice to continue in Afghanistan proper, and if you want to call it a cultural difference, like how the English prefer soccer and we prefer football, or heck, even I'll accept cultural differences uh, like in uh, you know rural China, people just defecate in the street. They just defecate right on the sidewalk. I went to China and, and I did not lecture people on how that is foul. Who am I to say I'm just a dirty American? Cultural differences is fine. But as long as you, Afghan guy, are going to serve alongside me, American, and be funded and armed and trained by me and my fellow Americans, you're not going to rape boys anymore. Is that, like, is, that, is that a difficult stance to take? What, what is wrong with us? I said before the break that if you want to explain the biggest problems in America today, you don't have to talk about anything beyond our military and how it's being run. And I want to be very clear again. I'm not talking about the men and women in the military. Please, you know me well enough to know that that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the men and women running the military. I'm not even really talking about our foreign policy. That's a whole different thing. I'm talking about the VA. I'm talking about rules of engagement. And I'm talking about policy that tells our Marines to turn the other way when they hear boys cry for help as they're being raped in the barracks below them. Those three things alone, you don't have to go any further. You don't have to talk about anything else in our country to talk about how disease, the disease of political correctness has, has destroyed us. Like, what is wrong with us that we think any of those things are appropriate? How we run the VA, the rules of engagement, and the policy that allows boys to be raped on American military bases. What the heck? You know, Saturday night, was uh, the Solutions for Change Gala. A salute to our American heroes. It was a wonderfully perfect night in every way. Really one of my favorite events of the year. There were a lot of Navy SEALs there. Taya Kyle, widow of Chris Kyle, American sniper. Taya Kyle was the main speaker. A lot of Navy SEALs, her family, came to support her. And I saw something from those SEALs. Saw something very powerful. In one word, gentlemen. Absolute gentlemen. One of the main speakers, uh, one of the speakers other than Teo was Clint Bruce. He's a Navy SEAL, former pro football player. Fantastic speaker. This is what I love about our, our SEALs and so many in our military. They're not just incredibly strong physically. They're smart and they have a big heart. They, they serve, they love, they care for, they protect. And this is what I saw. Clint Bruce, Navy SEAL, every time Teo went up on stage. Clint was there, leading the way for her, holding her hand as she walked up the steps. Just a pure gentleman the entire time, walking her back to her chair. And then when we were leaving, my wife and I were leaving, we were standing in line for the valet, and the guy behind me was another Navy SEAL. His car arrived, but we just it was just sort of parked out of the way. So he just stand in line just so we could chat for a while. And we chatted for like 10 minutes before my car came. So my car shows up. We parted ways. He, this Navy SEAL, walked around the car and opened up the passenger side door for my wife. 
So just for the record, I open the door for my wife mm, 38% of the time when we're both in the car. And I didn't do it that night. I'll be honest, I'm a little ashamed to admit it. I did not get the car door for my wife. She's a Southern Belle. She likes it when I do that. And I didn't do it that time. And I blame the valet. <laughs> I'm just, I should have. But the valet, we were in line. It was quick. We had to go. Blah, blah, blah. Awesome. But it didn't matter. The Navy SEAL was there. I mean, when I say didn't matter, I mean, all those excuses don't matter. I should have. I didn't. The Navy SEAL was there. He went out of his way to take care of my wife and open up the door for her. These SEALs are gentlemen. And again, it falls under the category of serving and protecting. It's what they do all the time. And I share that, and it's true not just for our SEALs. I just share that because that's what I saw on Saturday. But it's important because these gentlemen, when they hear boys being raped and they're told to stand by and not do anything, when a gentleman, when a warrior hears a boy being raped, they don't ignore it. When a protector hears a boy being raped, they don't cover their ears and pretend it's not happening. They stop it. The problem is these men also follow orders. And the orders from above are to pretend it's not happening. And to ignore the screams for help. And imagine that conflict. What do you do? Buckley did nothing. He did nothing. And just a couple weeks later, he was murdered by one of those sex slaves on base. Two Green Berets pushed one of those rapists to the ground. They got kicked out of the military. What do you do? I mean, like, if you're, if you're in the service, what, what, both of those are terrible conclusions. Whose side are our military superiors on? And I mean that question. I mean, it's pretty clear. I know that sounds dramatic, but whose side are they on? Honestly, is that an unfair question? Is that unfair? Whose side are they on? Are they on the side of the Afghan rapist or the... Or the uh, uh, Green Berets. Well, clearly the Afghan rapist, he's the one who's still serving and raping. The other two guys are trying to kick out. Whose side are they on? The Marine or the boys being raped? Well, clearly the boys being raped and the guy doing it because that Marine has, is now dead because they allowed this to continue. <laughs> don't, don't even get me started on Bo Bergdahl, right? <laughs> where where the, the officer in charge of the investigation says it's inappropriate to, to send Bergdahl to jail for being a deserter. I'll tell you, the men who served with him feel differently. Don't, that's not, I'm not even there yet. Unbelievable. I just, I can't even, this is, this is, this is the end result of the political, not the end. That's the problem. This is the next phase of political correctness in our military that we allow this to go on. So, so harmful to our country and, and sorry, I'm a loss for words. And this is just, it's as bad as it gets. I've never heard anything worse than this. one 888 It's the Mike Slater show on the blaze. Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I uh, just received this email here. I'd like to share it with you. Uh, this is from a 
hmm. Navy SEAL. Longtime Navy SEAL. I'll leave it at that. Longtime Navy SEAL. And I will uh, we'll call him Kent because that's my college roommate's name and not this man's name. Start in the middle of the email here. Um, I was asked many times what the hardest thing to handle from being overseas was. I always said that seeing children hurt caused me the most pain and suffering. Not the long walks or the mission. It was always and always will be the children. How is it that an, an intelligent man working in D.C. can imagine the love we feel for our children, the worries we have when we leave, and 30 hours later be in the middle of the worst of our fears for months at a time, adjust to it, understand it, accept it, watch it, and then come home? It defies every principle from our core down to our soul, and it cuts deep wounds in everyone. My girlfriend remembers the days years ago when I would come home and complain about this problem of abuse of children overseas. Not sure it hit her hard at the point. Might have thought I was a little out of it. I just kept venting each time and telling her more and more, but I never heard it on the news or in any reporting. The timing of the information released by the Marines and the poor Special Forces soldiers, the Green Berets, who was cut from the team by left-wing hacks is beyond words for me, despicable. And then you nailed it. Talking about moral injuries. Not physical, not emotional, but moral injuries. That's what we're experiencing. I knew that my primary mission overseas was, but I adopted a secondary mission as well. It was the children. That was a natural choice, the most worthy of our assistance and love. We always established a great relationship with the incredible field surgeons and their brave staff, lifesavers. What they did goes untold often, but is quite miraculous. If they did not have an American soldier on the table, we made sure they had an Afghan child on there. And they could not have been more accommodating. Isn't that wonderful? The injuries range from regular burn victims, as parents always have tea ready and do not hesitate to burn them with it. An alarming amount of green stick fractures in little girls in particular, as they have brittle, bro- brittle bones. Green stick fractures like... Uh, Rebone cracks, like bends and cracks, but doesn't break. This was an almost daily event, as well as IED blasts, occupational injuries, fingers, hands, arms, uh, severed badly from using a saw at a young age. A child's face drug almost completely off as he had tied his pet cow to his leg. Um, my main point, and the point that gave me new hope, is the exposure of the incidents of the abuse of young boys. I finally heard it out loud and wasn't just thinking it. We all knew it, but now when it was said out loud, but no one said it out loud unless we discussed it alone, and and where could we expose it? The epidemic is real and alive and so vile and devastating that it's unimaginable. I'm certain that of the 22 soldiers who take their own lives daily, this is a very considerable reason they do so. Out of my five years of rotations, and being embedded with many of the locals, we watched and corrected this problem an unbelievable amount of times. I would say on the light end, five times a week. And the problem is that once you correct it, you live it. You own it and you wait for the next time and it never stops. It's what didn't catch and who we didn't catch that's the problem. He goes on and shares a a few stories of... uh, what he saw. Uh, I'll end on this. This heinous crime, which is carried out and condoned on a daily basis is not describable. 
Not to the brave service members who carry out their duties every day, leave their loved ones behind, and are made to accept this war crime. It's not okay with our psyche. It might be okay with politicians, but not with the war fighters. Not even a little bit. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> this abuse, it's not okay with the war fighters, but it's okay with the politicians. We're told not to talk about it. Our service members are told not to talk about it because we want to be sensitive to local customers. We must talk about it, and we must stop it to be sensitive to our native customs. The native customs of our war heroes. They deserve better. Mike Slater Show The Blaze. Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Cassatters, thank you for being here. On our Facebook page, we are now releasing one every couple days the uh, different videos, different abortion story videos that we have People telling their story, whether they had an adoption, were adopted, were going to be aborted, had an abortion, almost had an abortion, had two abortions, gave gave birth to third. I mean, a bunch of different angles to the abortion story, and we just started releasing them, Uh, and you can search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and, and please spread them far and wide these people who who did these videos uh or who recorded their stories are uh so honest i mean a couple of the women they've they've never told anyone that they had an abortion and what perfect timing because look what we're up against as we made these videos not for pro-life people they're not for uh lawmakers these videos are specifically for women who are in crisis pregnancies right now who are leaning towards abortion. And the purpose of these videos, it's not for us, right? It's not for us to look and be like, uh, yeah, rah, rah, pro-life. It's for people who are in a crisis pregnancy to watch them and, and realize they're not alone. They're not alone. Look at these people who have made different choices. They were in the same position you were in how many years ago? Same position. And here are different choices that were made. Again, some chose adoption. Some chose abortion. But both are telling you you're not alone and that you too can make the right choice. So as we are doing that, there's a new hashtag out there called hashtag shout your abortion. I'll read a few of them. This woman says my abortion was in 2010 and the career I've built since then fulfills me. And makes me better able to care for the kids I have now. Hashtag shout your abortion. Bianca says, I had an abortion in May because I'm 21 and want to enjoy my youth. I will be an amazing mom one day too. Hashtag shout your abortion. Um, 
I had an abortion. This is Kelly. I had an abortion at 17. Not a hard decision to make. Very hard to cope with alone. Could have been easier without the stigma. Hashtag shout your abortion. Sarah says, I had an abortion nine years ago. I had a child five years ago. When I was ready, I'm a better mother for it now. Hashtag shout your abortion. Do one more here. Uh, 18 and broke and pregnant equals bad. Abortion three years later. Married, stable job equals a great life for my baby. Hashtag shout your abortion. Actually, one more. I've never wanted to have children, so I had an abortion. I'm thriving without guilt, without shame, without apologies. Hashtag shout your abortion. So here we are in this twisted society we live in. The one where it's official army policy to allow young boys to be raped on American military bases in Afghanistan. That culture we've created. Now the push is to make abortion stigma-free. Right? Make it, not only stigma-free, make it great. Look at how wonderful it is to have an abortion. The whole nonsense of, of safe, legal, and rare, which we've broken that down before, that's now old hat. Now it's shout your abortion. Abortions are wonderful. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how much better my life is now because of it. That's what we're up against. You with me? That, that's what we're fighting against. I don't even want to say fighting against. That's not right. Because I'm not fighting against that. Um, a woman, girl, who's in a crisis pregnancy is being fed that. Shout your abortion. Look at how great my life is now. They're not hearing from the woman who had two abortions, decided to see the third through the, uh, to the end, and then every day would go into her baby's room and cry, thinking about the other two lives that she took and the fact that she almost killed this third baby as well. They're not getting that story until now, because that's Kelly's story. They're not getting the story of, hey, you don't have to be so selfish because you can have an adoption and you can give a gift of a family to people like Sherry who adopted her baby after having a couple miscarriages and unable to have a baby herself. You can give that gift to someone. That's amazing. Give it to them. They're begging you for it. And that message wasn't there. Now it is with Sherry because she shared her story with us. It's what we're up against. Hashtag shout your abortion. Give me a break. We <laughs> search for the Mike Slater show on Facebook. We're releasing one video every every day or so. Um Yeah, we can chat about this real quick. So I believe politically this is the uh, biggest problem in our country. If I, I'm changing topics here. It's not abortion. Abortion is a huge problem. But I think politically, which is different than socially, politically, if I could change one thing about our country, it would be this attitude here. And it's not so much a change in our country. It's a change in ourselves, which would then change the country. And I want to show you what happened on uh, Colbert last night. So Ted Cruz uh, was on Colbert the other day. And uh, I want to play one clip here of the senator. Let's let's play the let's play the the opening question from uh, Colbert first. 
Well, let me ask you about yeah. Reagan first. Yes. Second, is that Democrats, Democrats, uh, you know, and Republicans have had reasons why they like Ronald Reagan. Um, but would, does today's modern Republican Party reflect some of the things that Reagan did? Reagan raised taxes. Okay. Reagan actually um, had a amnesty program for illegal immigrants. Neither of those things would allow Reagan to be nominated today. So, to what level can you truly emulate Ronald Reagan? Isn't that from a period of time when he was willing to work with Tip O'Neill across the aisle to get stuff done? Isn't that what people want more than anything else? Is not just principles, but action. First, let me, let me stop there before we play. First, I hate the concept of getting things done, right? That's what Colbert said at the end there. He's like, don't, isn't that what people want to get things done, get stuff done? I hate the concept of getting things done as opposed to doing the right thing, <laughs> right? I don't understand where this happened. Like, we all get this in our life. So, so my wife and I are, are new homeowners. We don't have really much of any furniture at all yet. We've been in the house for four or five months. And we've been buying one or two things a month. And we're getting pretty close, but we got a long way to go. We're going to buy like one or two things uh, every month. And we don't just buy things to buy things. We're not just buying things to get things done or to fill up the house. We're waiting to buy the right thing. And when we come across the right thing, then we get it. I mean, this is such a, a foolish concept. No one does things for the sake of doing things, right? No one gets in their car and drives randomly just for the sake of driving someplace. People drive to a specific destination for a specific purpose. No one buys food at the grocery store just for the sake of buying food. They buy You buy specific food for a specific reason. No one picks up the phone and makes random phone calls just for the sake of making phone calls. You pick up the phone and you call a specific person for a specific reason. So why then in politics is there this expectation that we just need to get things done? Just we just need to get, we just got to do stuff, as opposed to doing the right thing and fighting to get the right thing done. Because as always, when you say "oh, we just got to get something done," that's always used to justify something the left wants to do, right? It's always "oh, come on, just raise taxes already." Come on, we got to get stuff done. <laughs> no one in the media, Colbert, celebrities, whoever, no one says, ah, oh, come on, Congress, let's lower taxes already. Come on, let's just, come on, let's get something done here. Let's lower taxes. Come on, we got to get something done here. Never that. It's always something the left wants to get done. And their argument is always, let's get something done. That was Obamacare. That was the justification for Obamacare. I mean, we got to do something. It's like, really? Do we? I mean, yes, but does that mean we have to do the wrong thing? Anyway, that's one point. It's not even the point I wanted to make. Uh, I want to play these two clips here. This is from the same moment. Uh, focus on the crowd. I mean, obviously, listen to Ted and Colbert, but really pay attention to the crowd. That's what's important about this clip. You know, when Reagan came in from 1978 to 1982, economic growth averaged less than 1% a year. There's only one other four-year period where that's true. That's true from 2008 to 2012. And what Reagan did, he cut taxes, he cut regulations, he unchanged small businesses, and economic growth boomed. Millions of people were lifted out of poverty but into prosperity in the middle class. But when... All right. So Ted Cruz just articulated a fact, uh, a fact about economic growth in the 70s, early 80s, and then uh, the last three years, 2008, 2012. 
So it's a fact about low economic growth. And then he articulated a policy position reflective of that reality. And he issued this policy position in order to lift people out of poverty. No reaction from the crowd. Nothing. Got nothing. Here's what happened next. Conditions changed in the country. He reversed his world's largest tax cut and raised taxes when revenues did not match the expectations. So it's a matter of compromising. Will you be willing... Will you be willing to compromise with the other side? Because I would say that it is possible, it's entirely possible that your plan might be the right one. If it turns out not to be the right one, would you be willing to compromise with the other side, change your mind, and, and do something that the other side wants and not feel like you've capitulated with the devil? So, so here, here's what bothered me about that clip. Not Colbert, whatever. The audience. When Ted Cruz laid out a problem based on a fact... And he laid out a solution and a policy statement. No one in the crowd did or thought anything. But when everyone in the audience heard Stephen Colbert say something that confirmed their already established opinion, they applauded wildly. And that's a problem. People love to have their opinions validated. And it's frustrating because people want validation more than they want the truth. The people in the audience of Colbert already believed that Reagan was bad and conservatives don't compromise and raising taxes is good. When Cruz countered that claim and their worldview, nothing. When he said, my plan will lift people out of poverty, nothing, because it did not match their already held opinion. But when Stephen Colbert validated their opinion, people go wild. If I could change one thing, I wish we could place a stronger emphasis on the truth over validating your current opinion. That's the, if I could pick, snap my fingers, one thing, just a desire for the truth as opposed to proving yourself right. And there's science behind this. Um, scientists have shown that when we add something to our collection of beliefs, that thing is precious to us and we protect that belief from harm. And instead of looking to be proven wrong, because why would we do that? Because that would make our belief, that would hurt our belief. We look for stories that confirm what we already believe. And we just witnessed that on the Colbert show. It's tricky to overcome, but um, we need to. (laughs) Otherwise, we're just going to stay in our camps and yell at each other. And we're better than that. And I think the principles we have are stronger than that, deserve more than that. And that's why we're here, to try to figure out, to learn the truth. You know, where we're wrong, we'll do better. But also how to articulate the truth so that people want it as opposed to just being validated. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio 
This is Mike Slater. Slater Insiders, 1-888-933-93 and Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Thanks for making us a part of your Saturday. Talking about Ted Cruz, who uh, was on Colbert the other day. And, you know, he talked about how uh, the audience reacts to what Ted Cruz says when it's a conflicting view and you just reject it, right? You reject it because what he's saying is different than what I know and what I think and what I believe and what I believe is precious. <laughs> That's how we think about it. What I believe is it's perfect, it's precious, it needs to be protected. So I'm just going to put up a wall and I'm not going to listen to this counterpoint of view. And then Ted, uh, uh, Ted Colbert, uh, Stephen Colbert, who I love, by the way, I'm a big fan of Stephen Colbert. He went a little over the line here, but Stephen Colbert says something. And, uh, oh, that aligns with my point of view. That validates me. I'm going to applaud wildly. I think we need to be better than that when it comes to conservatives. We need to be better than that. We need to be better when it comes to listening to other point of views, points of view. And we need to be understand that our, view, our opinion may not be precious. Or it may be precious, but it's so precious and it's so strong that it can be held up against a counter point of view. Does that make sense? Like if it's, if it's it's precious, but that doesn't mean it's weak. It's precious and strong, and can can hold hold up and withstand other opinions and points of view. So I was thinking, like, what 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 would I have said if I was Ted Cruz? Now this is really easy for me because, not because I'm so brilliant. I mean, Ted Cruz is objectively brilliant. Um, it's really easy for me because I'm at the comfort of sitting behind this microphone on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not on national TV with Stephen Colbert and a crowd of hostile people. And I have time to think about it too. But when asked about Reagan raising taxes, and would you therefore also be willing to raise taxes for some reason? Now, we know that the deal for Reagan and Tip O'Neill was Reagan's compromise and said, I will raise taxes if you cut spending, you know, with X amount. I forget what it was. It's like way more than the tax raises were going to be. Tip O'Neill never followed through. And there was a, a little bit later and Reagan was asked about it and he said, yeah, I'm still waiting for those spending cuts. So Tip didn't uphold his end of the bargain. But I'm just going to ignore that for now. I would say something like, Stephen, have you ever been poor? And I know he has. So Stephen, when you were working really hard and making almost no money, what would have been better for you? If the government took more of your money or if the government let you keep more of your money. Now, here's the deal. Everyone knows that it's better for each person to keep more of their money, but this is what they're going to say. They're going to say, sure, but we need social programs. We need to fund the roads and police and fire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say, yeah, oh, absolutely, Stephen. I know we got to fund those social programs for people who need it. Um, we got to fund fire. We got to build roads. I, and I, I will do all of those things, but we can do much, much more than you're even dreaming of with much, much less of everyone's money. For example, Stephen, you're from South Carolina, your home state. It costs $39,000 to build a road, a mile of road, $39,000 in South Carolina. In California, it costs over $500,000 to build a mile of road. California has the highest administrative cost per mile of road and the highest percentage of roads that are deemed to be poor in poor condition. So it's just an example of best practices and worst practices. Look at that discrepancy, 39,000 versus 500,000. So when I look at that, I, I'm saying, Stephen, we're spending in many cases way, way too much money and we're getting way, way too little in return. So I think we can still cut taxes 
and let you and, and people in poverty and the middle class keep more of their money and still fix how government works and do more, do more of what you want with less. And where the government fails miserably, we can open up those things to the brilliant minds across America. So we can achieve those goals that you have, those things that you want to do. We can do them infinitely better than government's been doing these, these past few decades. Because I'm not satisfied with the government doing things poorly. I want things to be done well, very well, excellently. We deserve that. And the people who benefit from social programs and whatnot deserve that. And, you know, sometimes more money isn't the answer. It's how the things are run. So I want people to keep their money because people work hard. And I want programs to be run better and more efficiently. So, yes, yeah, Stephen, whatever it takes to do that, I'll do it. And I think that's a good answer. I don't know who can disagree with that. But that's the conservative answer. Have government do less, people keep more. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater, thank you for being here. May I uh, make the official Mike Slater Show statement on Barack Obama's faith? We just do this and get this over with. Uh, it's come back up again. Is uh, is the president a Muslim? Is he a Christian? Oh my goodness, which is he? And first of all, the conversation is kind of strange because there's like in in progressive land there's nothing wrong with being a muslim right so then why is it such a terrible slur call someone a muslim <laughs> think about it there's there how dare republicans call the president a muslim we're not calling him a pedophile I mean, people are calling him a muslim why why is that if that were true, why is that such a bad thing? Why are you so defensive about it? But anyway, that's not the important thing. Uh, here's the deal. Now, now, disclaimer, of course, I don't really know the man's heart. Uh, but my estimation is that he is neither a Muslim nor a Christian. We live in this world where everything has to be one or the other. Uh, we have a binary world. Uh, it's uh, Always look for the third option. The third option is neither. If I may quote Roger Simon, who I think puts it very nicely, he says, Obama is about as pure a postmodern agnostic as you can find. He's about as Christian as your average gender studies professor at Swarthmore. <laughs> so the president is a Christian out of convenience, just like Hillary in 2008 got on the U.S. Senate floor and passionately defended traditional marriage as a sacred union between a man and a woman. Did she really believe that? Didn't matter. It was convenient. 
I think there are things that politicians strongly believe in, and there are things that they just do to go along to get along. And I think for the president, that's Christianity. I don't think he's a strong believer. I think he's just like, well, I mean, for the love of Pete, he went to Jeremiah Wright's church for 20 years. <laughs> the, the first lady was on um, Kelly and Michael. There it is. So the first lady was on Kelly and Michael and said, quote, we, this is the first lady. We really try to use Sunday as a family downtime where we can kind of breathe and catch up, maybe take a little nap every now and then. If we're not working, we could be lounging and napping. In other words, not church. It's just, they don't go to church. They don't. Um, which is, for many Christians in America, it's cultural. You're just a cultural Christian. You don't go to church. Um, this view that the Bible is just a book of nice sayings. Um, and and some, of those, some of those sayings are meaningful in life. A little guidebook. And uh, Jesus was a great teacher. And uh, there's a God, sort of, that I'll talk to when things get really tough. And most people are Christians, so I'm just going to sort of celebrate Christmas. And, and that's the kind of Christian that Barack Obama is. And that's a lot of Christians. Um, and here's where he grew up. So in college, and this was before I was a Christian, I was taking a seminar. It was the strangest class. It was basically go once a week and listen to this old guy talk about cool things that happened in his life. I, I honestly don't even remember what the, li- the class was. I don't remember anything about it. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I just remember we just went and listened to this guy talk for a while. I don't, we didn't take notes. I don't. Even, I don't remember doing anything. But um, I knew very little about the Bible then. I was a priester. Right. I went twice a year to church. Christmas and Easter. That was it. Cultural. I was a cultural Christian. Never read the Bible. Fell asleep in church. I had a very similar church experience as is portrayed in the Simpsons. Right. That, that was pretty much my church growing up. So I'm in this seminar in college and the other 12 people in the class, they make me look like Apostle Paul. I mean, it was was unbelievable. And Jesus came up. I have no idea how, but Jesus came up in conversation around the room. And the consensus was that Jesus never even existed. It just didn't a figment of our imagination. Like, 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 you know, let alone that he was the son of God. Jesus was as make believe as the tooth fairy. And this was going around the room, and I said, and again, I knew nothing about Jesus, but, the, but I said, guys, I'm, I'm pretty sure he at least, like, existed. And that's, that's all I said. And that made me a zealot. I, w- I was just crazy psycho Christian because I, I made the argument that Jesus was like a walking around guy one time in the world. Let alone son of God died, resurrected, all that stuff. No, it's just that he existed. So that's the... I share all that because his progressive political ideology far outweighs any culturally Christian convenience that he may ascribe to. Way more important than the president's religious faith is his progressive faith. And the progressive faith is the faith that says the West is evil. That's the blind faith that is taught in colleges. And I have plenty of similar stories on that point too. But it's that upbringing. 
is why the president, when ISIS is cutting off Christians' heads, he says, hey, you know, everyone, you know, before we get on our high horse, I think we got to remember the Crusades. Right? People did some pretty bad things in the name of Jesus during the Crusade. He said that at the National Prayer Breakfast. <laughs> he didn't go to the, the Charlie Hebdo march in Paris, which is fine, I, whatever. But the thing that bothered me more than anything about that whole time was he could not get himself to admit that the ISIS terrorists killed people in a kosher deli in Paris on purpose, right? And he just made it seem as if they happened to stumble upon a kosher deli as opposed to killing these people because they're Jewish, right? He refused to acknowledge the connection between Islamic terrorist and Jewish and Christian victims. And then, of course, the Iran deal. So, so we, we see all these things, which are very strange to a lot of people and to many Christians. So the natural conclusion is, well, gosh, he must be a Muslim. <laughs> but I don't think that's right. I don't think that's a, a, the jump I would make. I would say, gosh, he's a progressive. He is a global citizen. President Obama is a transnational progressive. He's not a disciple of Jesus. He's a cultural Christian and a political progressive. That's it. And the political thing, and, and that's not, I'm not putting a value on that necessarily. That's for another day, but that, that's, that's just the assessment. Um, and the political thing is more important because he will be a Christian only as much as it gives him power and acceptance, right? He, was a, he would be a Christian to the point where it's necessary and then nothing more. Why do you think he went to Jeremiah Wright's church for 20 years? Because he believed in the doctrine of that church? No. Because his first priority was to be a community organizer. And Reverend Wright was a man of power and influence. So if I want to be a man of power and influence, I have to go to that church. That, it's, it was a, he was a Christian out of convenience. That's it. But that doesn't make him a Muslim either. It's just nothing. It's okay. You can just be nothing. Most, most people in America, I think, are just nothing. Uh, and I'll end this because I know there's some people who don't, don't believe me. New York Times Magazine editor. His name's Edward Klein. He did a three-hour interview with Reverend Wright. He was writing a book on uh, Obama. So this is a New York Times Magazine editor. This is not a right-wing zealot, right? So Reverend Wright goes on to explain how neither Barack or Michelle grew up going to church. He said, quote, church is not their thing. It never was their thing. We knew it wasn't his, but she was not the kind of black woman whose mama made her go to church and made her go to Sunday school. She wasn't raised in that kind of environment, so the church was not an integral part of their lives. Okay, that was Reverend Wright. So Klein says, but the church was an integral part of his politics. And he said, yeah. So that's it. I think the debate can stop here, right? Not a Christian, not a Muslim. He's a cultural Christian and a political progressive. And political progressivism is where his greatest loyalties lie. But who am I to say? one 900 It's the Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, um, I want to do one, one more. I want to say one more thing about this. I think it's important. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's not. I, I think it's important in the sense that we can just put this to bed once and for all. When it comes to Barack Obama's faith, I mean, for the love of Pete, he's only got a year left in office. I think we can move past this uh, now. Um, but I think it's important to know. I don't know. I have a proper answer for this. Because, again, I, I don't think Barack Obama's a Muslim. But I don't think he's a Christian. <laughs> right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. Uh, my answer is he's a cultural Christian for convenience and power and acceptance. Right? Acceptance in the sense of, um, you know, if someone says, what's your faith? And you say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian then that's you know easier to for people to swallow right now obviously there's a lot of discrimination against christians lately but that's easier than saying uh, buddhist or whatever um so that's his, he's culturally christian and he's politically progressive which is why he's so inclined to side with muslims because his progressive ideology says that uh, we must side with those who are oppressed and in the progressive worldview the muslims are oppressed now don't pay attention to the muslims beheading christians <laughs> but if you must, don't forget about them crusades, right? Right. That's progressive nonsense right there. But that doesn't make him a Muslim. So I just want to prove this one last time. I came across an interview that the president did in 2004. Now, this is when he was running for U.S. Senate a couple months before he gave his speech at the Democratic National Convention uh, in 2004, right? So this is when John Kerry was running. Think about that. John Kerry and John Edwards were running for president. That almost happened. So the country didn't know him. No one had any idea who Barack Obama was. Uh, he was still a state senator at the time. So he did an interview with Kath- Kathleen Falsani. She was the religion reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. And she said, uh, Senator, state senator, do you believe in sin? And he said, yes. And she said, what is sin? He said, being out of alignment with my values. Which is interesting. She said, what happens if you have sin in your life? And he says, I think it's the same thing as the question about heaven, which is the question just before this. In the same way that if I'm true to myself and my faith, then that is its own reward. When I'm not true to it, it's its own punishment. Mm, That's not not quite right. Uh, But this is the part I really wanted to share. I am a Christian. So this is Barack Obama, 2004. I'm a Christian, so I have a deep faith. I draw from the Christian faith. Now that sentence right there, (laughs) that's all you need to know. I draw from the Christian faith. What do you mean you draw from the Christian? Are you a, like, is that your everything? Are you a disciple? Like no disciples. We're like, yeah, take a little bit of Jesus. I take a little bit of this guy over here. I take a little bit of this golden calf. You know, I draw from Jesus. No. (laughs) <laughs> so I draw from the Christian faith. On the other hand, I was born in Hawaii, where obviously there are a lot of Eastern influences. I lived in, in, in Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world between the ages of six and 10. This is Barack Obama, Chicago sometimes. My father was from Kenya. And although he was probably most accurately described as agnostic, my father was Muslim. And I'd say probably intellectually, I've drawn as much from Judaism as any other faith. So I'm rooted in the Christian tradition. I believe that there are many paths to the same place. 
And that is a belief that there is a higher power, a belief that we are connected as people. So again, I draw from the Christian faith. This line, there's many paths to the same place. That's that's not Christianity. It's not. Right? I mean, Christianity says there's one path to one place. That's And it's the only path. And it's a narrow path. And if you sin and you miss the mark, it's not because you didn't do what you thought was the best thing to do. It's, it's a, little, a little bigger than that. Now, does that make Barack Obama a Muslim? No, 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 no. But is he a Christian? Culturally, yes. He draws from it. And he lives in America. We're a Christian country. But, you know, you determine if that makes him a disciple, which is a totally different deal. I think it's the good guy doctrine. I used to live by the good guy doctrine, uh, which is, well, I'm a good person. And I'm better than that guy, right? You know what I mean, like that guy, whew, he's in trouble. He's a bad dude. But and I got everything together. I'm doing pretty good. So I'll go to heaven. It's the good guy doctrine. If only it were that easy, right? Anyway, I, I don't mean to be uh, demeaning to the president. I really don't mean it like that. Or to you, if, if you have a similar belief system of the president. I, I'm not judging, but I think a deeper understanding of the Bible and of Jesus would lead one to believe that uh, no disciple would say, well, I draw from the Christian faith. So that's not, that's, not, that's not being a Christian, but it's not being a Muslim either. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be one of those others. He, the most important thing is he's a political progressive, and that's dangerous enough. 1-888-900-3393. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater for Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here on the Blaze Radio. 1-888-933-93 and Slater Radio on Twitter. Right now, though, want to talk about a classic news dump. This is a textbook news dump. They'll teach it in in textbooks uh, for all of history. This is Hillary Clinton in July. As president, would you sign a bill, yes or no, please, in favor of allowing the Keystone XL pipeline? Well, as you know, I was the Secretary of State who started that process. I was the one who put into place the investigation. I have now passed it off as obvious, because I'm no longer there, to Secretary Kerry. This is President Obama's decision, and I am not going to second-guess him, because I was in a position to set this in motion, and I do not think that would be the right thing to do. So I want to wait and see what he and Secretary Kerry decide. If it's undecided when I become president, I will answer your question. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> what a dodge. That's amazing. 
very specific question about a very specific issue. This is not a philosophical question, right? This is, do you support this one pipeline? And she went with the Pelosi doctrine. Wait until I'm elected, then I'll tell you what I think. That's essentially her answer, right? If She said, if it's if it's undecided when I become president, I will answer your question then. <laughs> I'd like to be an I'll answer. That's amazing. Now, someone listening now is saying, hold on, Slater. Let's be fair. She didn't want to second guess the president of the United States on this issue, right? She didn't want to make a statement that that's in disagreement with the president. So, so she's just being careful. That's all. Come on, you could say that about any question that she's ever asked, right? Or you could say, this, Hillary, how do you feel about school choice? Well, you know, I, I don't want to undermine the president's uh, policies on that issue. So I'll tell you what, when I'm president, then I'll answer your question about school choice. Hillary Clinton, what are your thoughts on gun control? Well, you know what? The president has strong opinions on gun control. So I don't want to undermine anything he's going to do in the next uh, year or so. So I'll tell you what, you vote for me for president and then I'll tell you what I'm going to do with gun. I mean, you can do that all day. It's the Pelosi doctrine. Pass the bill to find out what's in it. This is a logical extension of that, right? Pass the bill to find out what's in it. Now it's vote for me and find out what I believe. Now, that was in July. Yesterday, she announced that she is against the Keystone Pipeline. Now, that's what I said in the beginning here. I said that's a classic news dump. Why did she announce that yesterday? And it wasn't even that she did it yesterday. She announced it right when the Pope's plane landed. <laughs> that, that's what you, this is the equivalent of the White House releasing big stories on Christmas Eve when no one's paying attention. That's why it's a classic news dump. So Hillary Clinton's against the Keystone Pipeline. This is what she said. She said, quote, I think it's imperative that we look at the Keystone Pipeline as what I believe it is, a distraction from the wor- important work we have to do on climate change. And unfortunately, from my perspective, one that interferes with our ability to move forward with all the other issues, therefore I oppose it. That, is, that, is, that sentence means nothing. What are you talking about? Environmentalists don't care about the pipeline itself. Notice uh, Hillary Clinton. I must call her Nancy Pelosi. Notice Hillary Clinton did not say, um, I believe the Keystone Pipeline is a uh, distraction uh, because the pipeline is dangerous. Or whatever. That's the that's the argument they used to make. Now she's saying it's a distraction from the work we have to do on climate change. It's not the pipeline. It's the use of oil that they're concerned about. Environmentalists don't care about the pipeline anymore. There's no issue with the pipeline. They just hate oil. And they think that if they can stop the pipeline, then Canada, where we're getting this oil, is going to have some come to Gaia moment and announce, well... <laughs> All right. You got us now, America. We'll stop drilling. All right, already. Jeez. Okay, fine. You're not going to build a pipeline? Well, I guess we'll just stop drilling and we'll all just uh, build windmills like the 12th century Dutch, and that'll be great. You kidding me? Canada's not going to stop drilling for oil. They're going to build their pipeline, but instead of it going south through America, it's going to go west to the Pacific Ocean where they're going to put them on giant tankers and send it to China. China doesn't have environmental concerns. 
And that's the craziest thing about it. The environmentalists, they're shooting themselves in the foot. If they really cared about the environment, hear me out. If they really cared about the environment, they would want that oil from Canada to come to America. Because when we refine it in America, we refine it much cleaner than where the oil is going to go instead of America. The environmentalists think that if they stop the pipeline, Canada is going to stop drilling and then the the planet's going to be saved. When we know, and the truth is, if we don't build this pipeline, then they're going to send the oil to Canada, to China. And China doesn't care. They have the dirtiest refineries on the planet. So way more greenhouse gases will be emitted because we're not building this pipeline. So Hillary, you're doing, you say that this is distraction, uh, distra- this is hurting climate change. Or, or you know, how do I, you think that by stopping it, you're going to help climate change. But by stopping it, you're hurting climate change. You're making it worse. You know, by your silly definition. Anyway, enough rant, enough perspective there. Point is, Hillary's entire campaign strategy is to tell you as little as possible about her policies, to be seen as little as possible, to say as little as possible, and somehow sneak into the White House unnoticed because enough people like the idea of having a woman president. Remember a couple weeks ago she said, um, I never said to vote for me because I'm a woman. Vote for me because of my merits. And my merit is I'm a woman. That's an actual quote. So that's what she's banking on. She's going to share as little policy as possible. And the only reason she shared the other other day is because Bernie Sanders is kind of making her come out with these positions. But when she's going to do it, she's going to do it when the Pope's plane is landing so that no one hears it. Except for the crazy Bernie Sanders people who are looking for it. But she doesn't want anyone else to know that she's against the Keystone Pipeline. Shh, don't tell anyone. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Hey, Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. 1-888-900-3393 and Slater Radio on Twitter. Let's talk Bo Bergman. So we've been talking a lot about the uh, army policy that allows young boys to be raped by on American military bases. That's that's the, that's the world we're living in right now. That's the country. We're the, that's the military we create. But that is allowed. And things are upside down and backwards and everything's all screwed. And I think Bo Birdall's another example of that. So I just want to share an aspect of this story that I've never heard before. I think it's important. We know the basics, right? We have uh, Bo Birdall, soldier in Afghanistan. He left his post. The Taliban captured him where he was held captive for five years, four or five years now. And the president, just last year, exchanged him for five Taliban leaders who are now free and no doubt back. So the president traded an army deserter for five Taliban. Then held a White House welcome 
with Bergdahl's parents in the Rose Garden. Which is so weird. Meanwhile, the four Americans who are held captive in Iran, not even on the table to get them back. We don't get them home. Not, not even a part of the negotiations with Iran. Now, we release sanctions on Soleimani, who's the Iranian in charge of arming the terrorist proxy groups around the Middle East. So we, we get the sanctions off of their guy. But our four Americans, who have nothing to do with it, no military connections at all, they're still in an Iranian prison. So that just seems bizarre to me. But anyway, back to Bo Bergdahl. When the Bergdahl story happened, I, I cared about it, you know, a certain amount, whatever amount that is. But when it's in the context of what we've been talking about with the Green Berets being kicked out of the military because they dare push an Afghan soldier to the ground after he, they, he rapes little boys, right? So we're siding with child rapists over Green Berets. And when we allow Afghan soldiers to rape little boys on American military bases and our Marines are not allowed to do anything about it, they're told to look the other way. I mean, it is, it's so crazy. It's all upside down. And then we hear that the prosecutor, all in the same days here, right? We hear that the prosecutor of the Bergdahl case says he planned his escape uh, from the post for weeks and he mailed home his Kindle and his laptop and tried to have his pay diverted to his godmother. And still, the army general who's leading the investigation says Bergdahl should not face jail time. He says jail time would be inappropriate. Now, I, I think jail time would be inappropriate as well. I think something, <laughs> something harsher would be more appropriate. But that's not what this army general is saying. The army general says Bergdahl wasn't sympathetic to the Taliban. He said he was leaving base to call attention to what he considered poor leadership of his unit. That's all. That's all. His plan was to leave the post, run 14 miles to a nearby base, and then gain access to some high-ranking officials over there and complain to them. That's all he was doing. That's the argument. Okay, fine. Let's say that's 100% true. So what? You can't leave your post. <laughs> right? I don't care what your reason is. You can't leave your post like that. Because now you're missing and you put other men in harm's way. And end of story, we can't have that type of behavior. Once again, it's another example of the politically correct culture that we live in. This is, we live in an excuse-driven culture. An excuse-driven culture. I remember growing up, and if you, if I, did not do something the right way, and I started to give off a litany of excuses... My dad, my mom, teachers, whoever, the classic line was what? You, when your kids start to give off a bunch of excuses, what do you tell them? I don't want to hear it. That's it. I heard that all the time. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your excuses. No excuses. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Done. End of story. I don't care what the reason was. But, 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 no. <laughs> I don't care. Now it's all about excuses. May the best excuse win. And the army general said there's, a, there's a, uh, a combination of factors as to why Bergdahl left. Including the fact that he grew up in rural Idaho. I'm not even kidding. That, the army general said, well, you know, yeah, sure, he left his post. But part of the reason why is because he grew up in rural Idaho. 
Huh? He grew up, quote, on the edge of the grid, and he was homeschooled. And the fact that, this is a quote, and the fact that he internalized a lot of what he read resulted in him having idealistic and unrealistic expectations of people. <laughs> That's the excuse that the army's giving, the army general's giving to try to get this guy to not go to jail. He was homeschooled? Wow. What? What? A, like, again, we're living in an excuse culture, but those are lame excuses. As if there could ever be a good one. This is why I bring all this up. Anderson Cooper did a fantastic interview with Navy SEAL Jimmy Hatch. He was one of the Navy SEALs who was in charge of going to find Bo Bergdahl. He's a part of the story that we don't pay attention to. We're focused, uh, the country's focused on Bo Bergdahl and not focused on the people who risk their lives because this kid, and I say kid because that's what the steel calls him, this kid did not do what he was supposed to do for whatever reason. Whether he was homeschooled or from Idaho, it doesn't matter. He left his post. He put other Americans in harm's way. I want to play that. This is a kind of a long clip, but it's so good. Such a good interview, and I think the country needs to hear and know about Navy SEAL Jimmy Hatch. The question from Anderson Cooper was, um, was the mission to get Bo Bergdahl, was it a failure? To me it was, um, in the sense that we didn't, we didn't get him. Um, Do you know if he was there in that, in that area where you were? You know, uh, I was told that he for sure was in that area, that they found uh, things on some of the dead guys that, that, you know, indicated that, that he was there. Does it matter to you? I mean, is that a component of that you were wounded on a mission which didn't succeed and what the objective was? Is that something that resonated with you? I took a lot of that on myself. I felt like, you know, maybe if I'd have done things a little bit differently, not gotten hurt, you know, the mission wouldn't have failed. You know, there's no way to know that. At the time, I, I certainly, it was a failure to me and I was the cause of it. Hatch was awarded a Purple Heart and the Bronze Star for his actions that night by Secretary of the Navy, Ray Mabus. We'll not lose this war because that's deep. There's a lot of layers and we're all blessed. Hatch felt tremendous guilt for, as he saw it, failing on the Bergdahl mission and for leaving his brothers on the battlefield to fight without him. That, along with the wound to his leg that ended his 21 years as a SEAL, it all added up and sent him to a dark and dangerous place. Pain meds, you know, chasing him with vodka, and I basically became, you know, just this pathetic human. Did you think about killing yourself? Yeah, oh yeah, I had a plan, for sure. You actually had made out a plan? Oh yeah. Because that's when, you know, psychologists, whenever somebody goes to them and says, you know, I'm thinking about killing myself, that's the first question they ask is, have you actually taken the next step of made out a plan? So you had. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was a planner. <laughs> so, so this incident happens where gun, gun in my mouth, crying. and uh, You, you put a gun in your mouth? Oh, yeah, in front of my wife. And my wife... Somehow, I don't know how, she got the gun away from me. Hatch was sent to a psychiatric hospital for his own protection. It was another SEAL, the same one who'd gotten him to safety on that helicopter in Afghanistan, 
who made sure he got there. He's going to, you know, drive me to this hospital. And, uh, you know, <laughs> there are no medals for driving your buddy to a psych hospital. So, so we get uh, in the car, and I looked at him, and I said, man, I, I'm running. I'm not doing this. And he's like, listen, you got to fix yourself. You got to do it for yourself and for your family, and you got to do it for us because you're the beginning. There's going to be more like you, and it might be me. And I, that just, you know, stunned me. Guy saved my life. With those words? Twice. This is important. That, that clip's important. I don't care the reason why Bo Bergdahl left his post. Whether it's because he was homeschooled or because he grew up in Idaho. He left willingly. His brothers were put in harm's way. Lives were changed. For the worst. It's a Navy SEAL you just heard right there. There's no worse crime than leaving your brother's side in war. That is the highest sin. But now we have an army that's fighting to keep Bergdahl out of jail. And this Navy SEAL is having to work his way through the VA, where likely we are failing him again. It is all upside down. I hope, and the re, I, one reason I think it's important to do segments like this, is I hope we can put the standard, raise the standard back up that we are electing, first and foremost, a commander-in-chief. Someone who understands these issues, someone who, who deeply cares about them and will not stop until, until things are put right side up again. And that means a lot of different things because a lot of things are upside down. we got to get them back up. Otherwise, what are we doing? This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Is Mike Slater. Hey, Slater Crusaders. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. 1 Thomas Hobbes said that a hero overcomes our continual fear of violent death. Okay, everyone has a fear of violent death, and that's why we admire people who risk everything and take on that fear willingly. Now, back in the day, the ancient model, the hero was someone who did the killing. So Achilles was a terrible person but an epic warrior. The story of Achilles, it's, I'll tell it real quick. When he was a baby, uh, it was foretold that he would die young. So his mom took him to the river Styx, and the idea was if you touch the water, you would be invulnerable to attack wherever you touch the water, like whatever part of the body you touch the water with. So his mom grabbed his baby son, uh, her, son her baby son by the foot and dipped him in, in the water in the river Styx head first, right? grabbed him by the ankle, dipped him in the water and his entire body was covered with the water except for his heel 
where his mom was holding on. So he grew up to be an incredible warrior and survived all these battles and killed a lot of people. But it was his heel that was vulnerable. And it was an arrow that eventually shot him in the heel and killed him. Hence today, it's someone's Achilles heel. That's where that comes from. Anyway, the point is a man who was loved because he was fearless. That was Achilles. And he used that fearless instinct to kill people. That was the ancient definition of a hero. There's many. Uh, Julius Caesar, I say that he was willing to destroy the Republic because of his own ambition. There's many examples like that. But around World War II, excuse me, World War I, the idea of a hero changed. Now, it stayed the same in the sense that heroes today are no less afraid of death than heroes in ancient times. They're still willing to put their, their life at risk. But now the difference is it's not about taking lives. It's about saving lives. That's the difference. Todd Lindbergh says the change is from slaying to saving. Right? The idea of a hero back in the ancient motto was how many people did you kill? Today, it's how many people did you save? Chris Kyle, American Sniper, he said he, didn't, he does not want to be known by the number of lives he took. He wants to be known by the number of lives he saved. Big difference. Huge difference. I forget what the number is, like the number of kills that um, Chris Kyle has. He, does, he doesn't care. He doesn't want anyone to even know that number. It's the number of lives he saved. That matters. And even if you look at the Medal of Honor, the, the highest medal for heroism, even that has evolved. You look at the Civil War medals that were given, they were given to people who killed a lot of the other guys. But now they're for people who save a lot of people. So heroism has changed from I am someone to I can do something for someone. And that's good. It's a good thing. It's a good change. But that's been evolving from World War I to today. We're still evolving. And now I think we're going too far. What I'm not okay with is another evolving aspect of our culture. And that's lifting up the victim. Right, so we used it used to be I am I am someone. We lift up the hero who killed a lot of people. Now we're lift up the person who saves a lot of people. Now we're moving into this weird world where we lift up the people who who need to be saved. And that, that's not a good change. And this ties into what we've been chatting about about how everything's backwards. So I want to back it up for a second. W. Uh, H. Auden. He was a British fellow, British poet. He wrote a poem called For the Time Being. And in it, he fears a new age. And this is his own words, where reason will be replaced by revelation. And instead of rational law, instead of objective truths, knowledge will denigrate into a riot of subjective visions. Idealism will be replaced by materialism. And this is the key. Justice will be replaced by pity as the cardinal human virtue. Pity. 
justice will be replaced by pity as the cardinal human virtue. He wrote that in like 1942. Jonah Goldberg puts it great. He says, victimhood is the new currency. Victims are a new kind of aristocracy. We elevate them. We elevate the victims. How do we do that? Bo Bergdahl. <laughs> Just look at Bo Bergdahl. He left his post. Captured. Exchanged for five Taliban top officials. And the president praises him and hosts his family at a rose garden ceremony. What? Why? He's not a hero in the ancient sense that he killed a lot of people. He's not a hero in the more modern sense that he saved a lot of people. How is he a hero? How is he worthy of praise at all? In, in what planet is he worthy of praise? Oh, he's a victim. That's why he's worthy of praise. That's what we've created. We talked uh, last week about two sociologists who have studied this phenomenon, this change. So we've been talking about this change for years, and finally academia is trying to catch on. They're trying to explain what's happening too. And they said that we used to live in an honor culture. Now we live in a dignity culture. And I, we don't need to go into explaining exactly what this is, but they say now, we go into a, now we're living in a victimhood culture. So we went from an honor culture to a dignity culture to a victimhood culture where now people are encouraged to be victims. People are encouraged to, to be offended because if you deem yourself fragile, then you will be lifted up and praised. <laughs> it's so weird. So backwards. What are we doing? Give me another example. And I use this not because it's the best example, but because it's a recent example. The kid from Texas who invented that clock, right? And got arrested for it, whatever. First of all, he didn't invent it. Right? <laughs> the media says he invented a clock. First of all, clocks are already a thing. And he just took a clock that was already made and took it apart and moved it into an already made pencil box holder. That's not inventing a clock. But anyway. If this kid made a baking soda volcano like everyone else, or if his name was John Smith, he would not be going to the White House or the Facebook offices or MIT and Harvard wouldn't be giving him personal tours. We're lifting this kid up, not because he did anything. He didn't do anything. He didn't help anyone. But he's a victim. And that's enough. Good for him. He's now a hero. Right? No one's getting, no one's invited to the White House for doing, right? I mean, I mean, some people are, but like that, that's not what's getting the accolades. That's not what's getting the press coverage. It's the, now we're inviting people who are victims of things. Huh. So just to review, in ancient times, you were a hero if you killed a lot of people. More recently, you're a hero if you save a lot of people. That's a good change. Today, you're a hero if people hurt you. Now, of course, people who are hurt deserve protection. 
but they don't deserve to be viewed as heroes. And when we do that, we're only incentivizing victimhood. And how can that end well? One last example. This, is, this, this whole phenomenon is why at the University of Buffalo the other day, um, it's a big outrage because apparently there were, uh, people woke up in the morning and there were these signs all over campus that said whites only. And they were signs above in the bathroom and above water fountains and stuff like that, whites only. And everyone freaked out, like, oh, my gosh, the racism is still prevalent, blah, blah, blah. Turned out to be a black guy posted those as some art project. And he did it. This is what he said. This is the craziest thing. He did it, he said, to inflict pain and suffering and discomfort into other black people. His goal was to make people victims. That was his expressed goal, was to make victims. There are no medals. Victims. His goal was not to, to tell black people, hey, study hard or whatever, right? Like make, make yourself a wonderful life. His goal was to make people victims. His express purpose, because victimhood is celebrated. He said that, and it's celebrated because we've incentivized it. We keep, we're in the very beginnings of this, but imagine this a couple of years down the line. Got to stop celebrating victimhood. We protect victims. We help victims. But we don't want to make victimhood something that people aspire to. We've got to get our culture back on track fast. one 888 on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I want to uh, end on this. Here. looked at an old picture the other day of the United States Air Force Academy. And there's an area right by the chapel where the cadets meet to line up and march. And it, it's a ramp that goes underground into a tunnel. And above the tunnel, in the entrance of the tunnel, uh, in raised silver letters, it says, Bring me men. Bring me men. And I thought that was a really interesting slogan. Bring me men. Now, I say I looked at an old photo of the Air Force Academy because 10 years ago they took that down. It doesn't say bring me men anymore. Now, that's not, that's not inclusive enough. Now it says integrity first, which is okay. right? That's good. But it got me thinking, where did bring me men come from? Is it okay if we end the show on a poem? It's from Sam Walter Foss. Now, this poem was recited on the 4th of July in 1894. And the song is called The Coming America. And I started reading this poem, and I didn't realize how long it was. And it just kept going and going and going and going in classic 1894 style. And usually in things like this, I lose interest. But I think this poem is perfection. Now, for the sake of time, I'll only share three parts here. But I think it's all very good. And you can check it out yourself. Sam Walter Foss, The Coming America. 
So here's the beginning. On the 4th of July, we all love to dilate, so to, to talk about, with the thought that we are inexpressibly great. That we're all recipients of fate's fairest bequest. And that destiny's egg has been laid in our nest. We love to talk about that. We, we've climbed up the sides of uh, up the roof and sublime. We stand on the top of the ridge pole of time. The horizon's too narrow to limit our stride. An infinite space too small for our pride. Heaven's vault too small. Our hosannas to ring. And the zenith too low for our gestures to swing. Our heads are too tall for the low studded sky. And we call for more room on the 4th of July. <laughs> I love that, right? It means we're awesome, right? Merca. And we got no problem talking about it. But then he says, excuse me if I may say something a little different on the 4th of July. For aren't we too old to be pleased like boys with glory and gunpowder, thunder and noise? We're too old to sit in unruffled sedateness and muse on our grand and ineffable greatness. The loud days of our national boyhood are over. The barefooted freedom of dew and clover. Let us throw off with the boy's outworn jacket. The old day of rollick and revel and racket. The day, those days are now past. They'll not come again. We are now men. Let us grapple the problems of men. Let us look at the sum of our work neath the sun. Have we yet not as much as the old past has done? Yeah, we've, we've built our large cities of marble and brick, but our Shakespeare's and Plato's are not very thick. We have urged them to speak with the best of goodwill, but our Milton's are mute and inglorious still. Our dawn has now passed and the morning glows, grows late, but our absentee Angelo's linger and wait. Meaning Michelangelo, all those right, artists. So he's talking about like, where, where are the greats in our country? I got to skip to the end here. He said, so, so where are these people, the great people? And he said, there is music I know that is hopeful and blithe. In the swing of the sickle, the sweep of the sky. In the lips of the foreplane, the smith's anvil peal. In the roar of the mill and the clash of its wheel, there's a music that's timed to the rhythmical beat of the quick step of fate in the thunderous street. There's a music that's played by the breeze and the gale and the creak of the mast and the flap of the sail. And there's something that smacks of an epical strain in the clack of the engine and the sweep of the train. This music, though mixed with the, t with the uh, toiler's tired moan and mingled with the heartbreak too, too deep for a groan, is wrought out at length in an anthem sublime that fills without discord the wise ear of time. His point is everyone has the ability to pursue noble pursuits. And he ends with this. This is the best part. Bring me men to watch my mountains. Bring me men to watch my plains. Men with empires in their purpose and new eras in their brains. Bring me men to watch my prairies. Men to watch my inland seas. Men, who thaw, men whose thoughts shall pave a highway up to ampler destinies. Pioneers to clear thoughts marshlands. And to cleanse old errors, fen, bring me men to watch my mountains. Bring me men. We need men who aspire to greatness once again. Because we can't rest on our laurels. We have to do better. Bring me men. See you next Saturday, Slater. Slater. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.